It's the Carson McKellar Center's weekly Weave Me. This week's episode is the first of three based on an interview we conducted with Natalia Temeskin on July 1st, 2020. Natalia Naiman Temeskin is an award-winning playwright and screenwriter. She worked recently as a staff writer on the fourth season of the Netflix original series, Dear White People. Her plays have been produced in New York, Princeton, Philadelphia, Boston, Atlanta, and Columbus, Georgia. Her short films have screened internationally at festivals. Her original TV pilot, B. Rose, is a 2019 Launchpad Top 100 finalist. Natalia received the American Playwriting Foundation's 2019 Relentless Award Honorable Mention for Lawn People, a political drama dealing with immigration, identity, and motherhood. Her most recent play, Ace, the Eugene Bullard Story, is an epic bioplay about the first African-American fighter pilot. She is an assistant professor of creative writing at Columbus State University and a columnist in the Columbusite, Columbus Ledger Inquirer, and American Theater Magazine. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Oh, uh, Natalia, um, so I feel like these days... Every conversation begins with some version of, this is a strange and difficult time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But in fact, it is. Uh, And you have been working recently as a staff writer for Dear White People, a Netflix show dealing directly with uh, the issue of racism and other things. Uh, In season one, that is volume one of that show, uh, the character Reggie is held at gunpoint by campus police at the fictional Winchester College where the show is set. Then this spring, immediately after you finished your stint in the writer's room for that show, we witnessed the George Floyd murder at the hands of the police. And then Mm -hmm. closer to home, just up the road in Atlanta, the murder of Rayshard Brooks by a white police officer. Can you reflect on all of that for us? That is working on that very popular and of the moment show uh, and the events of the last few months? Sure. Um, Working on the show felt like an oasis in which all of the writers could discuss those types of issues, whether they be microaggressions um, in the ivory tower or on campus, right? Or those bigger issues of um, police brutality or weapons on unarmed black men and, you know, the things that we covered in previous seasons Um, But it felt like a space where every day we kind of got to talk through those things with no sense of this is too heavy or this is too much or we're going to freak out the, you know, not non-black people in the room if we talk too long about it. So it was really unique in that way. But uh, to your point, you know, kind of getting out of that and then finding that the world is still reflecting that same content back at us. Mm. What's been very cool is to be able to see that conversation that felt like it was specific to us being in that private writer's room expand into the public conversation. And so now I feel like I'm talking about the things that have been on my mind and on my lips in certain spaces more freely in public spaces or larger spaces or more diverse spaces 
which is encouraging. At the same time, um, I was thinking about Cassandra and the idea of her insanity is always uh, tied to the fact that she can't be understood. Right. But I'm starting to wonder if if someone just finally understood what she was saying, mm. like, would, would that make her even possibly go crazier? Because it's that sort of sensation that I'm feeling, which is now everybody seems to understand what, what we've been saying or feeling for a long time yeah. almost feels disorienting all by itself, even though it's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just uh, reading something in the New York Times today was, and talking about how quickly public sentiment, in may, I will call it mainstream public sentiment, mm. is changing. Yeah. Uh, and it is. And I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I understand what you mean. I think it's disorienting for everyone. Yes. Um, but I was wondering also if uh, maybe you've been in contact since uh, because you came back from Los Angeles when in, in May? Is that when you came it back? It was or? supposed to have been May, but because of COVID, we finished that writer's room on Zoom. Mm-hmm. So I came back in March and continued okay. working from here. Okay. And have you been in touch with other folks in the writer's room since then, since these things? Have oh, you guys... yes. Yeah. We yeah. have a group text. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's been interesting because... Um, we feel very good about what we put down now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we felt good about it before, but we feel even better about it now that we know that the country seems to be more open yeah. to uh, talk about race. And um, I'm very excited to see how people engage this next season. Yeah. Um, you grew up in Columbus, Georgia, then went yeah. to Princeton. How has that informed your writing for Dear White People? Very much so. You know, coming up in Columbus, um, first of all, the Black identity here is a little bit more specific to the Black Southern identity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that carries with it sort of more of the sense of an identity being born and having been enslaved. We have that history very palpably here. But going to Princeton, of course, you're surrounded by a lot of white people, but you're yeah. also, the the black people that you're surrounded by are a lot more diverse as well, right? right. So you have a lot of um, first generation folks or immigrants or, you know, people that just come from more kind of um, major cities that have different kind of perspectives. And so that was also disorienting for me too. I remember at the beginning, I felt like, wow, I'm really country. I never even thought about myself <laughs> that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'll say, uh, thinking about Winchester and Princeton is like, it, it feels like the same thing. You know, we talked mm-hmm. about that at work, which Ivy are we talking about, you know, but mm-hmm. the answer is, I think just all of them. And really, frankly, I think it's any predominantly white institution is what we're yeah. talking about. Um, yeah. It's tough because I remember as a student, there was, whether it was spoken aloud this way or not, there was a sense of, well, you're lucky to be here, Mm -hmm. right, as a black student. So there's nothing to complain about anymore. Look at where you are. You've made it. Um, And that's a tough moment because you do feel privileged, but you also feel like, well, I'm not crazy. I'm still sensing and experiencing these microaggressions all the time. So but I don't have the right to complain or. Yeah, that, that's what like one, of the, uh, one of the one of the 
the criticisms in through text or email that Samantha receives about her radio show. It says that, that very thing, you know, you're, you're right. at an Ivy League school. Why are you complaining? That kind of thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, I think what's really exciting about this moment we're in is I'm seeing so many undergrads um, becoming uh, activists, basically, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and really speaking their truth about things they've experienced and, you know, probably been uh, dismissed yeah. by administration or whoever it may be. Um, they're finding ways to band together. This is like the season of the demand letter. <laughs> I <Yeah>. love it. <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, and just how many names can we get at the bottom of this thing? Because there's strength in numbers. And so that's what's exciting about this, this season that we're experiencing as a culture is while it is disorienting and overwhelming, we're seeing change happen because folks aren't having to stand all by themselves mm -hmm. in the face of a gatekeeper or the powers that be. Yeah. So um, I love seeing that. I'm excited by that. Good. Good. All right. Uh, this question, I'm, I'm going to apologize beforehand. It's kind of long and it's got okay. some statistics in it, some of which you may already know, but uh, here we okay. go. The show is set on a fictional Ivy league campus, Winchester, uh, and that campus and the Princeton campus, where you are an undergraduate, are quite different from the campus where you and I teach at Columbus State University. Mm -hmm. um, we're living in a town, Columbus, Georgia, whose population is 45% African American, 41% Caucasian, about 3.5% Hispanic, 3% mixed race, and 3% other races. Our university, and I'm assuming this is still true, I heard this, it's been about 10 years ago, but I, I think it is still true, um, has the largest percentage of African-American students of any non-traditionally black university or college in the state of Georgia. Wow. Yeah, and like I said, I first saw that about 10 years ago, and in fact, we have a higher percent percentage of African-American students now than we did then. So I'm assuming it's still true. It may not be. But anyway, the, I think the That's point is, is, is still made. Currently, we have 50% of the student body is white. 37% is black. 2.5% Latino, 2% Asian, and a little less than 1% Native American or Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. In short, our student body is a lot more racially diverse, uh, a lot less white than Winchester or Princeton. Um, because of your unique experience, I'm really interested in your perspective here. How does CSU's racial diversity make the experience different from what they would have uh, had at schools like Winchester or Princeton, do you imagine, for our African-American students especially, or does it? Hmm. This is a great question. Oh, boy. I feel like um, there must be a level of being seen that the black students at CSU feel that I didn't necessarily feel mm. at, uh, on Princeton's campus, just literally, literally walking into classes and not being the only one. Yeah. Uh, that that has got to be a relief on some level. Mm -hmm. That being said, what came to mind is the black theater students and what's going on with um, the theater majors kind of speaking up about discrimination that, that students, current students and alumni have experienced in the department. Um, and I personally remember two students, two black women that I taught. What, there, there was that time where I was teaching theater 
classes mm -hmm. as well right. before I was in English uh, for good. Mm -hmm. And two of my students were disheartened that they were not seeing opportunities for themselves on stage mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the um, season that the department was putting together. Yeah. And we came up with a little initiative to, to do like a reading series for, it lasted a few months, but just to sh sort of binders full of women type idea, like mm -hmm. let's just show them all the plays that they could do. Right. You yeah, know, right. To highlight. Right. Um, and that was four or five years ago. And I remember them trying to go to the administration to also raise those same concerns and not getting very far. Mm -hmm. So, and then to see what, you know, has been reported in the Saber, it suggests that nothing has improved mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. since that time, which really does suggest that, uh, that despite the numbers and the percentage that you gave, you know, for certain black students on campus, they definitely are still feeling marginalized. Right. Um, and so maybe on a social level, it might feel a lot better to be black mm -hmm. to you than it does at Princeton. But I guess on a hierarchical level um, or on an administrative uh, administration students relationship, I think there's still a lot of concern for black students to feel heard. Mm -hmm. In fact, what struck me about what the theater uh, students are doing and the progress they've made to try to get um, higher ups in the administration to look at these stories is a lot of white students decided it was their problem too. That's mm. what really struck me. Mm. And so that says to me, there is something inherently about being black and complaining mm -hmm. that just doesn't go very far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Well, well thank you. Um, yeah. Um, I, well, you know, and what you said about theater, that, that is something that's playing out on the national level too. I mean, there's yes, been stories in the in the New York Times recently about that very thing about discrimination in the theater world in yes. general. So, yes. uh, I guess it's not unusual that we should have that at CSU. But you would hope that at a place that has this sort of racial diversity, and especially mm -hmm. uh, such a large percentage of African American students, that that wouldn't happen. So, uh, still still progress to be made, obviously. So, I don't suppose you could give us uh, a little bit of a uh, taste or a preview of what uh, is going to happen in season four. I'm, I'm particularly interested uh, in the episode in which you are the lead writer. Is there anything that you can say about that, or is it? I is think it I strictly can say a, a little. Yeah. Um, thank you for your interest. Mm -hmm. I would say that I got the episode where they go home for winter break okay which was very fun because that meant i got to invent some characters that didn't previously exist in the series cool um so we will get to see what's like for seniors in college to have to go home that's always mm -hmm. a fun mm -hmm. time <laughs> and so do we see all sort of the main characters go home and and or is there their one character that we're focusing yeah. mostly on a couple characters there and then you know it's also the thing that we sometimes talk about you know in our job on campus which is that some students don't go home right right some yeah. students might not have the means to get back home or what whatever might be going on and so mm -hmm. um we have some students in my episode that stay on campus as well let me guess so we lionel stays on campus Nope. Oh. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Seemed like a good Actually, guess. We're following him uh, in my episode going home. He's oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay.
This week's reading comes from the opening passage of the Carson McCullers short story, The March. The march was sparked by the bombing of the Hilton Zion Church, but the bombing itself had been preceded by much unrest in the town. The church was a target because clergymen, both white and black, had convened there to discuss the poverty and backwardness of their town. Civil rights, of course, was the main issue. In the town of Hilton, there was a law stronger than the law of Congress, that Southern whites and Negroes should not meet socially for any reason. Hilton would handle its own problems as it had for more than a century. At some time on a Wednesday morning, a time bomb was set in the church. It exploded at two in the afternoon during a wedding rehearsal. The bridegroom-to-be was killed. Blood came from his body in crimson, radiant spurts. The minister was injured slightly. The bride was physically unhurt, although she had fainted from shock at the roar of the explosion and the sight of a fiancé killed in such a fashion before her eyes, and it was assumed at first that she, too, was dead. When she was taken to the hospital, she could not speak for 12 hours, but later she was all right, or as all right as anyone could be after such an experience. Although it was a Negro church, the town was in an uproar. Newspaper and television photographers and reporters suddenly appeared, though none of them had ever heard of the town of Hilton before. Immediately, the eldermen of the church and other responsible civic leaders, both Negro and white, decided on a protest march to start in Hilton and go to the state capitol in Atlanta, a hundred miles away. That summer, Jim Gray of Stillwater, a hamlet two miles from Hilton, had thought much of marches, sit-ins, lock-ins, and he was just waiting for an opportunity to participate in any civil rights demonstration. He saw the ruined church on the 11 o'clock television news and decided to wait no longer. It was announced that the march would start the next morning. Therefore, on that morning, the family in the small southern town of Stillwater ate an early, helter-skelter breakfast because James Gray The 17-year-old son of the family was going to march. The well-to-do white family was facing a time of confusion, acrimony, and discord about civil rights, and now James, at the center of this confusion and turmoil, was leaving for the unknown. The swirl of words, equal rights for Negroes, voter registration, desegregation, and even that ugly word, miscegenation, was muted now that the hour had come. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCuller Center's Weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullercenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio.
The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullers' 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Ryan Worley, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Additional music used during today's reading was called When David Heard by Eric Whitaker. It was performed by the Schwab Singers on October 9th of 2018, under the direction of Dr. Ianthi Marini, courtesy of the Schwab School of Music. The reader for today's text was Susie Parker DeVoe.